Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. when people take their clothes off. I mean, the, the first thing is that, you know, when, when we see naked people, it, usually in our lives, they're in a, in a movie or in a magazine or something. So, you know, they've been Photoshopped or they're actors with like who go to the trainer for eight hours a day. They have these amazing bodies. And, and when you go to a nudist place and you take off your clothes, you realize that everyone actually looks kind of like you. And then a lot of people become sort of friendlier with their body, like, oh, I don't have to look like a movie star. I'm fine the way I am. And, and that kind of body acceptance can be really a profound and liberating idea for a lot of people. And so once you do that, and then you've taken off your clothes, and clothes create this kind of status, right? When we see someone dressed a certain way, like they're, they're stylish or they've got money or they're you know, wearing a coverall because they're working in a warehouse or whatever, that lets you know sort of something about them. Well, when everyone's naked, that goes away. So you're just dealing with people one-to-one as people and there's none of that sort of economic status or educational status or any of the kind of class things that come along with clothing. And some people find that like really de-alienating. They're like, you know, and I will say nudists are completely friendly. So once everyone's like down to their, you know, birthday suits, they just tend to be more open and, and engage without any of those other kind of anxieties that sometimes come along. What are the benefits of going naked? And does nudity impact on our emotional and psychological well-being? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to shake things up a bit with some dirty, messy, crazy John Updike. And hear how bearing all, yes, you heard me, going it in the buff, works wonders for your sense of creativity, imagination and morale. Adam Begley unpacks the complex and hilarious voice of middle-class America John Updike and Mark Haskell-Smith talks his latest literary jolly, Naked at Lunch, The Adventures of a Reluctant Nudist. This is a show about playfulness and sex, boundaries, toleration and judgement. But first, how difficult can it be to write a decent and somewhat real sex scene? Without doubt, the novels of John Updike captured the changing social and cultural landscape of small-town middle-class America between the 1960s and 1990s. Not to mention the psycho-emotional challenges facing your average American Joe. Well, in an unrivaled career spanning over 50 years, John Updike wrote over 30 books, produced several collections of short stories and poetry, not to mention hundreds of reviews for the New Yorker magazine. His list of awards and honours is beyond impressive. But what is the price of great literature? And was America's greatest man of letters a sexist writer? Well, journalist, writer and literary critic Adam Begley has just produced a hugely candid, judicious and intimate account of this subversive literary master. Where he writes, of course there was an undercurrent of aggression in all that expertly deployed charm. A nice, happy author, no thanks. 
I found I liked him all the more. Well, I gave Adam a shout over the weekend and I put it to him. Was Updike the voice of small-town middle-class Protestant America? He certainly thought he was. He described himself, Updike did, as the bard of middleness. He wanted to capture the ordinary life of middle-class Americans and he succeeded in, in an extraordinary degree, most notably in his famous tetralogy, The Rabbit Books, and also throughout a body of work that extends to more than 60 books composed over the course of 50 years. Yeah, his output is extraordinary when you think about it, but I think he saw himself very much as a working writer. He was had a very strong work ethic. He went to his office six days a week. He was very disciplined and he just kept at it, didn't he? He certainly did. Updike once described his attitude towards writing as very much like that of a dentist who goes to his office and does his job for five hours a day. He tended to write in the morning for about three hours, and then he would do all of his other business in the afternoon. But certainly he put in a full day every day except Sunday, which is what you needed to do if you want to produce that many books. There's no way around it. To be a writer, you have to lock yourself away in a small room and get to it. It struck me as I was reading through your biography of Updike over the weekend that in some way you were destined to write this biography, Adam. I know that he cradled you when you were a (laughs) child. He was a close family friend and you ran into him several times. So do you feel somewhat destined to do all of this? It's true that Updike and my parents were friendly. They weren't close, but they were friendly. My father had been Updike's classmate at university. And sometime after university, when I was a baby, Updike dropped by our house and saw me in a contraption called an easy baby, I believe. And I was lying there gurgling as babies do. And next to me was a bowl of fruit. And Updike, who liked to do this sort of thing, he was a very uh, charming party animal kind of guy, picked up three oranges and began to juggle. And according to my parents, I started to laugh and that this was the first time I had ever laughed full baby laughter. So maybe given that I was intended to be Updike's biographer. And I did have the opportunity to interview him several times when I became a literary journalist and he was already a famous, very well-established man of letters. So I had some advantages as his biographer, but um, I also faced the same hurdles that anybody has uh, when they come up across a, a novelist with such a huge range of work and who kept himself actually pretty private in another respect. From reading through the pages, dutifully, I might add, all 500 of them, (laughs) Adam, was he a very playful character, a bit of a messer? Well, yes. Updike was an only child, and he craved the attention of other people. He wanted to somehow recreate a family around him wherever he went. And so he liked to be the life of the party and to joke and clown around. He loved to do pratfalls and to just enthrall the people around him. Uh, And then in later life, he became uh, something of a womanizer. When he had had a family of his own and had four children, he embarked upon a course of serial adultery that lasted for some time uh, until his second marriage, which put an end to all that. How well do you think he writes sex? I'm just thinking of couples now as a book, because clearly he had a good time himself and he was able to maybe put it into his books in some way. 
Oh, yes. Um, Updike was a great believer in writing about sex as honestly and frankly as he would write about anything else. And I think he was very good at it. I'm not sure that Couples is the best place to look for his best sex writing. It's somewhat dated, I think, in that respect. Um, And what was shocking in 1968, when it was a huge bestseller and landed him on the cover of Time magazine, is today, well, not exactly tame, but more common on the pages of novels. But still, there are in that novel and in many others very, very delightful erotic scenes. And it's something he never gave up. Even in his later books, there are just episodes of very, very graphic physical description of the sexual act. And Adam, a lot of female readers weren't too happy about this. Like they would have seen, the, seen him as somewhat misogynistic. I wonder if the, the, it's the sex scenes that earned but him the... female the, characters in general, well, besides from the Witches of Eastwick, he doesn't seem to really give them a lot of time, maybe. I think that Updike's problems with feminist critics who labeled him a misogynist and a sexist began in the 60s when, in fact, Updike's female characters were a little bit limited and essentially they're either as decoration or as sex objects or as foils to men. And when this was pointed out to him, he reacted. I mean, we are all born with prejudices and blind spots and what makes us good human beings, I guess, is that we overcome them. And Updike did this, in, I think, rather exemplary fashion. He transformed himself into somebody who thought very hard about women in society and wrote through them and about them with tremendous sensitivity, I think, towards the end of his life. And you can see this progression all over the place, but especially in the Rabbit novels, the first of which came out in 1960 and the last of which in 1990. And over the course of those decades, he really grasped the idea of strong, important female characters and to put them on the page. If you take a look, for example, at Rabbit's wife, Janice, she's in the first novel often called a dumb mutt and has really a sort of sad and, and secondary role to Rabbit. Um, by the end of the fourth novel, she's a strong, vibrant character who's in some ways more capable than Rabbit. And uh, I think that's, a, that's an impressive progression. Harry really represented the ordinary, typical American male, not too overtly talented, <laughs> messy relationships, vulnerable, but complicated in another way. Well, Harry is definitely Updike's idea of the middle American. And Updike saw Rabbit, Harry, as his ticket to the front row seat of the American drama. And the books from the first novel to the last become more and more full of the news of America. There's a sort of background panoply of current events and detail about American society that's really a kind of sociological investigation of America. And Harry was one of Updike's three main alter egos. And he is the one who is Updike's conduit into the life of the nation, whereas the other two are, serve very different purposes. There's Richard Maple, who is Updike's eye on family life, especially on marriage. And then there's Henry Beck, who was Updike's eye on the literary world and the world of writing and publishing. How did his two wives, Martha and Mary, how did they 
cope with the fact that there are relationships were somehow creatively interwoven into storylines. I can imagine that must have created a lot of tension in the family home. It sure did. Um, Mary was a bit of a saint about it. Mary's first wife recognized early on that she was going to be used in his fiction and just decided, told herself that this was, first of all, the price of being married to a novelist. And second of all, that if the books were good enough, it was worth it. And so she simply endured it. Martha, whom I did not get to interview for this book, um, she did not want to cooperate. I think gave Updike a harder time about using versions of her in his fiction. And there's a little bit more disguise of the Martha figures in his work than there was of the Mary figures. But she had the same willingness to sacrifice herself for the greater good of a literary project that she thought was worthwhile. And the fact that Updike is so enormous a figure in the American literary scene goes a long way to justifying their idea that a little bit of public humiliation was worth it. And Adam, what about his children and his friends? Because he also brought them into his books as well. Yeah. You know, there were moments when Updike included parts of his family life that was uncomfortable for his children. His son, David, memorably put it that he realized early on that his father was going to put his writing ahead of his relations with real people. And I'm not sure that David agreed with that, but he wasn't going to try and stop his father. And he, too, is a, David's a writer, and he understood the value of what his father was trying to do, even though he clocked the pain that he might be causing. Updike lost some friends because of using their lives as his material. But most often, people were kind of flattered and pleased to find themselves in the fiction of a major American novelist. Now, one of the things I was interested to read about him was his travels to Venezuela, to Russia. He went to lots of different countries. He was incredibly curious, and he brought that back into his short stories, didn't he? And his poetry. Yes, he did. Um, Updike was a small-town boy and and didn't travel much as a, as a young man. But uh, the moment he left university, he went abroad and was in, actually in England for a year. And from then on, he started traveling, sort of an accelerating cycle of travel. As he became more famous, he went to book fairs and and symposia and conferences all over the world. And he traveled with a tremendously avid eye for detail and put all this in his books. So that one of his more extraordinary novels is called The Coup, was written in the 70s, is about a landlocked African nation. Now, up to that time, Updike had only been to Africa once, and he, he spent three weeks crossing the continent. But he looked so carefully and thought so hard about what he was seeing that he was able to go home and, and write a novel that was incredibly detailed and plausible about Africa. But then he went, in the early 90s, he went to Brazil for just two weeks and then came home and wrote a novel about Brazil that actually did flop, um, and most people hated it. So there, his powers of perception perhaps failed him, and he bit off perhaps more than he could chew. But in general, his travel writing is mostly to be found in the books about his alter ego, Henry Beck. And it's very clever, perceptive, 
and engaging descriptions of foreign countries. He had an ability to just find out the detail that would give you the national characteristic in a, in a phrase or a paragraph. Do you think he was one of the greatest short story writers of the 20th century? Or is that overhyping it a bit? Oh, I think that I'm not alone in thinking that he is one of the, I don't know, a handful of best short story writers of the 20th century. His mission, as he put it for himself in his short stories, was to give the mundane its beautiful due. And he succeeded to an extraordinary degree. The, the precision with which he saw and the ability with which he described what he saw made for really beautiful passages of description that he always managed to link to larger meanings in a way that makes short stories the power that they are. You know, the way you can get an emotional, packed meaning in a tiny little space. Yeah, I think he was, if he has a, a single talent, it would be short stories. Maybe that was a poet in him as well, though, that he could compress language so well. Oh, absolutely. And his poetry is one of the the underrated aspects of his career. One of his very best books is his last book, which was called Endpoint. And it's a collection of poems that was mostly centered around his death and his dying. Updike looked at his condition when he was diagnosed with lung cancer and saw it with tremendous clarity Uh, and absence of sentimentalism, and really looked at the imminence of death with the same kind of candor and intelligence that he did every other aspect of his life. What I found very sad was at the end of your book, you have, when he was dying, how how frustrated he was that he couldn't write, and that he wanted to write right up until the end, but it wasn't possible. Can you tell me about that? Well, Updike was a writer before anything else. He always put his writing first. Um, it came before his wives. It came before his children. In a sense, it even came before himself. What he valued about himself was what he was able to put down on paper. And when his illness, which developed very rapidly, it was only eight weeks between the diagnosis and death, when his illness kept him from writing, according to friends who saw him, his overwhelming emotion was anger, anger that he was being kept from doing the thing that was most natural and most important to him. Now, you've a little bit at the end also on Ian McCune. I hadn't realised that Ian McCune was such a fan of John Updike and had actually visited him in his house. Yes. Ian and John met in, I think it was in the 70s, but it could have been the 80s. They interviewed each other, um, or that is, Ian interviewed um, Updike for a BBC programme. And they got along very